Hello and welcome here again live to the World Crypto Network uh, to the next part of this show, Reed Rothbard and Use Bitcoin. And today we are joined by the one and only Stefan Kinsella. How are you doing? I'm very well. Good to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm really uh, glad and, and really thankful that, that you joined uh, this discussion here uh, because you've, you've really written some fantastic, fantastic uh, books and articles uh, on, on you know intellectual property and and the the theory of ideas and uh, it's you've been a great influence on, on my life and I've quoted you already a couple of times here on the show before uh, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion thank you for for joining happy to do it so uh, to start off you know we always uh, get off with uh, with some quotes uh, but first I really want to uh, you know put this out here that your book against intellectual property uh, is Fantastic! It, it really is amazing. It really lays out uh, what intellectual property is and, and why it is such such a fallacious topic. And we'll get into uh, this more into detail here. But you can get the PDF or the audiobook for free thanks to the Mises Institute and, of course, thanks to Stefan. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much for providing it here. Um, um, it's my pleasure. <laughs> And uh, we're gonna, just going to start off with a quote from uh, your article that you sent me in advance called Intellectual Property and Libertarianism. Creation is an important means of increasing wealth. As Hans-Hermann Hoppe has it, uh, observed, one can acquire and increase wealth either through homesteading, production, or contractual exchange, or by expropriating and exploiting homesteaders, producers, and contractual exchangers. There are no other ways. While production or creation may be a means of gathering wealth, it is not an independent source of ownership or rights. Production is not creation of new matter. It is the transformation of things from one form to another the transformation of things someone already owns, either the producer or someone else. Using your labor and creativity to transform your property into more valuable, finished products gives you greater wealth, but no additional property rights. If you transform someone else's property, he owns the resulting transformed thing even if it is no more valuable. So the idea that you own anything you create is a conf confused one that does not justify intellectual property. Uh, so Stefan, just you know, a couple more words to, uh, to, this, to this quote. Uh, what is it all about? Well, you know, uh, Intellectual property is something I've focused on over the last uh, 25 or so years of my legal career, which I'm a patent attorney here in, in America, and also um, in terms of libertarian theory. And although it's not really – I used to say it wasn't my main interest um, because I was, and I in a way still am more interested in, in other aspects of uh, libertarian theory like the basics – the basis of rights, uh, epistemology, ethics, uh, Austrian economics—you know, even history. And not that, not that I'm an expert on that at all, but you know, history and sociology and uh, the other issues. But because I started trying to figure out this issue of intellectual property, because I was getting conflicting or things that seemed, uh, you know, conflicting ideas about it, or uh, or things that didn't make sense to me, the more I thought about it and because I was practicing that type of law, and so I understood it. And so at first you see people make mistakes like you know, just legal mistakes. They, they, they confuse trademark and copyright and patents all the time. And this happens even with some of the best libertarians who are pretty solid on the IP issue. Even they get these things confused, and uh, I understand why. It's like it's like not knowing the three or four different types of antitrust law in the U.S. You know, you have the Clayton Antitrust Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act, and they're all sort of different. Uh, and you have to be a specialist to know these things. And of course, that's one problem with having a legal, a legalistic, and a legislation-based 
legal system in the first place, right? It, it becomes the, the domain of specialists. Um, but, you know, so I tried to clarify these things in my own mind and for others. And the more I did it, the more I realized that, that people were getting this thing confused. So I turned my attention to that. And uh, with my interest in Mises and economics and property theory and libertarianism, and with my knowledge of the law and intellectual property law, I tried to sort it out and j just to get it out of the way, really. So I wrote some article back in like 2000, you know, 18, 19 years ago now. I just wanted to write one thing and get it out of the way and turn my attention back to the other things that interest me. But you know, it's never died down because this is a, con a, a perplexing issue for most people, and I found that to sort it out in your mind requires a rethinking um, of the basics, right? About what property is, what the purpose of law is, what rights are, interconnections between different types of law. Um, so it, at the very least, getting your mind sorted on intellectual property makes you clarify your thoughts on basic libertarian issues, which I still think are in a sense more important. But anytime, you know, so I've developed like an antenna or like a uh, uh, a red flag instinct. You know, when the hairs on the back of my neck go up, when I start hearing something, I can detect right away someone is mis they're misunderstanding intellectual property or they're saying something about libertarian theory or economics that would lead to the same mistakes that led to patent and copyright law. Then I automatically start getting on the alert, right? Like if someone says that, oh, you own the fruits of your labor, I know what they mean usually. Usually it's reasonable. Usually it's decent-minded. Usually it's a metaphor, but that type of thinking that you own the fruits of your labor, I know where that idea comes from and where it could lead to. right? So when you say you own the fruits of your labor, that's the Lockean idea that you own your, you own your labor because you own your body because god gave it to us so you have this whole host of things that are all problematic vague non-rigorous type of statements which were could be well-intentioned and usually are but they could be used um uh, for equivocation or to argue for the wrong things so if you believe that you own your labor then you could believe that well then you own things that you create and therefore, you own the intellectual creations that come from your mind and so on. That leads to a whole host of mistakes. Um, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but not, not exactly because – so this is an explanation of why I'm always now alert to um, imprecision. I mean even, even the word – I mean I even argue with people over words like coercion and government. I'm like, well, we libertarians are not really against coercion. We're against aggression. Uh, we're not against violence. We're against the initiation of violence, right? We're against aggression, mean, uh, meaning that. And um, we're not against government. We're against the state because government, as you know, being from Europe, the word government doesn't mean the same thing in Europe as it does in the U.S., where in the U.S. the word government is sort of synonymous with the word state. Whereas you guys talk about not having a government or forming a new government, but you don't mean when there's a new government being formed, you don't mean that there's no state. So you distinguish in your minds between the government and the state. Um, so you have this functional distinction uh, between what a governmental function is and what the state as an entity is. In the US, I think the distinction would be the administration, like the Trump administration. That's more equivalent to your government. Um, but even that is part of the state. But you know, even in the U.S. and in Europe and most of the world, we're used to education and, say, the roads being part of the state because we're used to it. But it doesn't mean that it has to be. And so the word government is one of those words. So anyway, I'm just saying I, I get particular on these words like coercion and government um, and even law and rights. You know, so um, that's just one reason I try to focus on these things. Um, now I forgot where we were going with really, all this. Really Get me back is, on track. It, it really is important uh, to figure out these nuances. And, and I agree with you. Once I really 
And I'm not saying that I understand this concept, but once I really, I really understood what it, what it essentially is all about. You you realize how many fallacies are are in your everyday thinking. And I just want to point out a comment that Blake Anderson put in the in the chat. He says that I own the fruits of my labor, but not the obligations relating to other individuals. Mm. Uh, so, what mm. do you think about that? Yeah. So this is like so like. Uh, uh, Stephen Molyneux, for example, who uh, is a fairly well-known um, libertarian-ish philosopher based in Canada, um, whom I know, um, I've heard even him use the expression that – like he'll use the word ownership in this broad way to mean uh, to mean responsibility, basically. Like you're, you own your actions. So they'll say you own your actions, but what they mean by that is if you – you know, perform an action that harms someone, you're responsible for the consequences of that action, which most libertarians believe, right? That's torts and criminal law. If you harm someone by your actions, you're responsible for it. And you could say in a loose way, that means you own that. You know, people say that I, I don't own that. But technically in in legal philosophy or in, in, in just law, to own is a legal concept, meaning you have the legally recognized right to control a resource. Um, so I would distinguish between obligations and between uh, ownership. Or I would say this, ownership only implies basically negative obligations, the obligation to refrain from doing something, which is one reason why libertarians or the classical libertarians used to emphasize the difference between negative and positive rights or negative and positive obligations. And we would say something like, well, libertarians only believe in negative obligations, not positive. And what they meant there was that you can't be on the hook. You don't have a positive obligation to provide someone with you know, the means of their survival or their life or food and shelter. It's basically the denial of a general welfare claim because that would imply that everyone is each other's slave and that that leads to chaos or to you know, uh, an anti-liberal society. So to me, ownership precisely used means the legal right to control a scarce resource. Um, it has nothing directly to say about what your responsibility is for how you use it. And in fact, if you use the, if the, term, the term too uh, carelessly, then you take for granted things like the concept of strict liability, which is what a lot of libertarians seem to think is the case. And they don't analyze it in close situations because if they did, they would realize that it doesn't really um, answer all the questions. So, um, uh, so for example, if you have – I don't know. If you own an animal like a dog and the dog escapes and bites someone… You know, some libertarians think, well, you're the owner, therefore you're responsible for what the dog did. But to me, that doesn't follow automatically, right? Because they're assuming that ownership means responsibility. Now, you'll have libertarians that make the kind of opposite argument against the socialist welfare-minded types, and they'll say that you can't have responsibility without ownership and things like that. They're just trying to come up with arguments for why the logic behind the welfare state doesn't work, and I think they're right. Um, but it doesn't mean that uh, ownership – that responsibility is an incident uh, or accessory of ownership per se. Uh, in fact, I would say that's actually not true. I would say that what you're responsible for are your actions, not for the ownership. See, ownership gives you the permission to use something. It doesn't mean you're responsible for how that thing is used. On the other hand, if you – commit an action even using things you didn't own you're still responsible so to me the the key uh the key criteria is 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 the is the action that you engage in so as an example if you own a a gun or a knife or a piece of wood or you know and someone steals it and commits a crime using that that item i don't think you're necessarily responsible for it just because you are the legal owner of that thing on the other hand the criminal is responsible even though he didn't have the ownership rights to the to the tool that he used to commit an action. The question is, did he commit an action that you know did something that's prohibited? Um, so, you know, if you distinguish now in pro properties, I was going to get to this: so the labor concept and properties. Another, um, most people use the word property 
nowadays to refer as a synonym to the particular thing that is owned. That's the subject of your property right. And I'll even see definitions. They'll say a property right is a is the right to control a piece of property. I'm like, well, when you're using the word property um, in the definition of the concept itself, I would say that a, a property right is an ownership right. So I would think property and ownership rights are like synonymous terms. It's the legally recognized right to control a scarce resource. Okay. So then the question is never. So you'll get these people. They'll say something like. Um, well, and we can turn now to our subject. Is Bitcoin property or is or ideas property in the intellectual property sense? So they put the question as, is it property or not? And their question is a little bit of a strange one because that's like asking, is the ether between the stars property? It's The question is never, is it property? The question is, is there some object of dispute or disagreement or conflict between human actors? And there's a dispute over it, and we need to decide how to settle this, right? Who gets to control this thing? And when you put the question that way, the focus gets drawn to, okay, what is the thing that's in dispute? What are they physically contesting? What are they conflicting over? What is it that they both can't use at the same time? What is this thing that they're, they're, that they're both claiming some kind of control right over or ownership of? And that narrows down the question of what the thing is and helps you define what it is. But the thing is always a thing that's something that we could manipulate and control as a means of action. That's why people fight over these things. So it's always a resource. You could call it in general or a good or a resource. Um, so then the question would be not is that property, but but whose property is it? Or is this a thing? Who Who's the owner of this thing that we're contesting? And when you put the question that way, it often becomes clear um, that really the question is, whose body is it? Hmm. And most of us have an answer to that. It's the person who controls that body. It's your body. So because we don't believe in slavery, right? Um, you know. So for example, in the in the case of defamation law or reputation rights, if you say, well, who owns the reputation? You have to own your reputation. But they're assuming that a reputation is a type of thing. That's a freestanding existing entity that can be owned. And then the question for them is who owns it? Same thing with a song or even a Bitcoin, things like this that are the abstract entities, the way we understand them. And they just jump right to the question who owns it? Now, if you ask who owns a song or a poem or a novel, then people are used to associating acts of labor or work or effort or creativity with being successful in the world because in a private law society where you can control the inputs and outputs of your efforts, you're going to profit from it. So they're used to associating you know, labor or work with being successful. So they might offhand say you own the fruits of your labor. Um, but what they really mean is you're entitled to have a freedom of action within a framework in society where you can try and you can try to make a successful uh, life, right? You can sell things to people, you can make a successful business, and it generally re would result in you being successful. It doesn't really mean that you own the fruits of your labor. What it means is, is you're going to reap the rewards of your efforts if you have, if you're able to privatize and internalize the costs, right? Which is part of the purpose of property rights is to stop externalizing uh, externalities, right? So. Uh, when it comes to Bitcoin, why don't we let's just turn to Bitcoin now because the way this all started, I am by the way, I'm a huge Bitcoin um, enthusiast and uh, collector, you might say. Uh, uh, I know that I'm an amateur compared to lots of people, although I think lots of the experts uh, pretend to know more than they do because a lot of what they claim to know um, is a forecast of something that's going to happen in the future, and I think the future is inherently uncertain and unpredictable um, as common sense and logic shows and Mises showed. So when you say that I know this is going to happen uh, for sure, I think you're usually full of it. Um, so I think a little bit of caution and humility among the prognosticators is what I admire more. And anyway, I know that I'm an amateur on this issue, but um, um, you know, you hear people say things like, uh, you know, he's, he stole this guy's bitcoins. 
and they'll use the word steal loosely or metaphorically or casually. And I, I simply started observing, well, to steal means to take someone's property or resources that they own without their consent um, and to co commit a tort or a crime. And I just started thinking, is it really theft that you're describing or is it something else, right? And so I started – the more I thought about it, the more I concluded that, well, Bitcoin, a Bitcoin, Bitcoin is just an entry in a ledger. It's a distributed ledger that's distributed across many people's computers around the world in a voluntary system that they, they agree to participate in, right, a network. Uh, so can you own a ledger entry? A ledger entry is just information, and information is always patterns that are stored on other people's – on someone's property. It's the rearranging of property. You know, A Bitcoin is just some kind of data pattern that's part of a larger data pattern, and data patterns are always ones and zeros nowadays which are stored on some underlying substrate or medium, has to be. I, I mean, I suppose you could imagine a set of laser you know, light waves being beamed through space, um, carrying pulses, right, uh, modulated in a certain way. You could imagine that as embodying a pattern, and I guess the substrate there is the ether or whatever the space-time continuum is. But no one really stores or holds even that kind of information. It's usually stored somewhere, stored in your brain, stored on a piece of paper, stored in pits and lands on a, a compact disk, stored in magnetic perturbations on a hard drive, uh, stored in semiconductor flip-flops, you know, on a on a on a on a non-volatile uh, RAM on your computer. It's stored somewhere on some physical thing that's just arranged in a certain way. So a Bitcoin is just information, and the information is always stored on someone's computer. If it's stored on your computer, you already own the computer, so you don't own the Bitcoin in addition. That'd be like saying you own your computer and you own its color, which makes no sense. Um, and by the way, if you just owned your computer and you own the pattern there, that you're not really part of the Bitcoin network. You have to have, you know. You have to have your pattern recognized and distributed throughout the entire ledger, which means it's stored on many people's computers, and you simply don't own their computers. Um, so I would simply say you don't own a Bitcoin, but I was thinking in the legal sense, not in the actual control sense. So there's two two meanings of the word ownership, and of course all the Bitcoin nuts went crazy. Oh, you're criticizing Bitcoin. You're saying you can't own Bitcoin. Owning Bitcoin is better than… Owning your car because your car can be taken from you by the government. The government can't take my bitcoins away, or you know, the uh, the government imposes property taxes on your house, so you don't really own your house, and they can take that away from you, but they can't take my bitcoins away. Blah 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 blah. And they're right about all that, but that I wasn't saying that they were wrong. I was simply saying you don't own your bitcoins. Um, so, but just making that statement requires unpacking the concept of ownership. Distinguishing it from control or economic control or possession of a resource and distinguishing economic concepts from legal concepts. So economics you can think of as describing the way things are. It's called descriptive, right? descriptive analysis, whereas the law is uh, normative or it, it sets out rules that you should follow. So it's prescriptive. It prescribes what you should do uh, to comply with the law or to get certain results or whatever. So all these things are important, and I do help. I do think it helps to um, have a better understanding of the nature of of property rights in general and of Bitcoin. But I, I've rambled on along. Go go ahead. I'll let you interrupt now. Oh, I'm I'm absolutely not going to interrupt your your flow. I don't mean interrupt. Ideas. Sorry. That, <laughs> that that is that is amazing what you what you just all said, and uh, it really is a fascinating topic. And uh, you know, you talk in in your book uh, quite a bit, especially here in this chapter on property and scarcity, uh, that the fact that there can be conflict over these goods uh, makes the property rights necessary. Right? We we need to coordinate who owns what, and we can only do that with a clear definition of what owning stuff means. Uh, and th my question would then be. Uh, because in Bitcoin, yes, it is information, right? It is a, a non-scarce good in, in that sense. Uh, 
But also there can be a conflict over who owns these goods because a Bitcoin, the, the monetary unit, a Bitcoin, uh, can be, if, if we assume that it's only a, uh, it's not a multi-signature, but only uh, controlled by one private key, right? Uh, only this private key can have control over it. And uh, it can only be spent once, right? There is no double spending uh, of a Bitcoin. And therefore, I would argue, there can be conflict over who, who can spend this UTXO. And therefore, I, I might argue uh, that we need, or th that therefore there is uh, property rights uh, arisen out, out of that concept. Yeah, see, the problem I have with that is that um, the question is, what is being fought over? And so so uh, here, here's one way to conceptualize it. S suppose that um, you own a house and you go away for vacation um, for a month. And while you're gone, um, Kevin Carson <laughs> or some left libertarian moves in, <laughs> not to pick on Kevin. <laughs> um, someone moves in. And so when you get back, they're in your house. Now, you can't use your house anymore unless you somehow physically oust them. And so you have to, you have to do what you have to do to use, the, use physical force or self-help or you call on your neighbors or you call on a court. You, you somehow have a, a dispute over the use of this resource, right? And most of us would agree that you know um, you're the owner, and the current possessor can be physically forced out if he has to, and have to pay damages, etc. Now, take something that's less um, less uh, stable than a real property or immovable property, like a piece of land or a house or an improvement on there, something like a watch. Let's say you have a, your grandfather has a watch, a very valuable sentimental watch, and someone steals it, you know, 50 years ago. And that watch is passed around, it's, the, 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 the thief sells it to someone else and it's sold to someone else. And eventually, uh, one day at a flea market, you see the watch or at a pawn store, you see the watch for sale and you have Let's assume you have um, inherited all your grandfather's rights. Now, you might want to claim the watch back, even though the guy owning it right now is a sort of a good faith possessor. We call it in the law. Now, the law has rules to deal with that. Um, usually, you'd be able to get the law back, the watch back. And in you know purest libertarian law, you should be able to get the watch back, even though there was an intermediate person who owned it, right? Um, who was an innocent. Uh, good faith purchaser um, uh, because you own the actual watch. You never parted with the ownership of it, um, which means that you could get an order from a court saying to the current possessor, you have to turn the watch over. Okay, So that's the result of this line of thinking. Now, what would it mean to own Bitcoin? It would mean that if someone somehow steals your Bitcoin, and you can imagine a house being – trespassed against or someone squatting in your house or stolen. You could imagine a watch being stolen. You could imagine a cow being stolen or an apple, you know, apples from a tree uh, or even gold coins. You could imagine all that being stolen. You could have, even imagine people being stolen, right? Uh, enslaved or killed. But if we imagine a Bitcoin being stolen, which is just thrown out there, by the way, without giving the context of what exact scenario do you mean by being stolen? You know, like when the FBI or whoever it was seized uh, the Silk Roads coins, yeah, I guess you could call that stolen. But where are we already know the, the government is a coercive agency, and they basically trespassed against the physical property of the whoever was in control of Silk Road servers to do that. So it's not so clear they just stole the bitcoins out of thin air. They it was just a consequence of their stealing his computers or something like that. So, but let's imagine a Bitcoin is stolen. So let's say 10 Bitcoins are stolen from some guy. Now he, he goes to now he goes to court, and let's say the guy that stole it from him has already spent those 10 Bitcoins, so they're in someone else's hands now. They're in a third party's hands, like the watch might be in a third party's hands. And you could get the watch. Let's assume you could get the watch back or the stolen bicycle or some movable object. What, what's your remedy for the stolen bitcoins? The ten bitcoins you can you can trace them. They're in they're in fifty different people's hands now. 
can you get an order from the court for them to turn the bitcoins back over to you or can you get an order from the court telling all 50,000 users around the world who have nodes or or that are miners can you tell them you have to adopt this patch to the software to recognize this this rewinding in a sense right of this transfer and give and give give the current holders bitcoins back to the original victim of the theft well if the court had the authority to do that, they would have to basically have ownership of the computers of all these people that are participating in the network, and I don't think they have that right. The people that have – they have just a copy of the current ledger on their computers. They, they don't have any obligation to shift that ledger to represent the, uh, you know, the restitutive reality that people want to impose on them, and because that's not conceivable in a just way… My conclusion is that you can't own the bitcoins because if if ownership doesn't mean that you can order people to undo the situation, it means nothing at all. Okay, right? great points that, that you bring up here, and um, maybe in in addition to the term stealing bitcoin, there well there there are consensus rules, right? They were they were set on the January third two thousand nine by Satoshi himself, and and they are continuously to this day uh, being operated from by by everyone's uh, full mode, right? And a part of this consensus rule was a rule set on how to spend Bitcoin. And in order to do that, you need to create a transaction that had an equal amount of outputs and inputs. Uh, so no additional Bitcoin were created. Uh, but then more importantly, uh, they have to have a valid signature uh, that links to these unspent transaction outputs uh, that are the new inputs of this new transaction. And you could say that in this rule set of Bitcoin, in the law of Bitcoin, in the consensus code of Bitcoin, uh, it clearly says that as soon or as long as you have a correct and valid signature to this transaction, it is a valid Bitcoin transaction. And even though that a malicious hacker might somehow get control over your private key, if he has a valid signature of that private key, um, that will send the funds to his own personally controlled wallet, uh, well, then he has not stolen Bitcoin from you because he has played perfectly fine by the rules. There is no arbitrary way of, of making a valid Bitcoin transaction unvalid because it is valid. And uh, there we clearly see that it doesn't really matter who, which real person has access to these Bitcoin. As long as the, the, the rules were uh, upheld by uh, the consensus rules, as long as there's a valid signature, it is a valid transaction. And therefore, no court whatsoever can make it invalid and re remove it from the blockchain. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think that's actually an important point because one of the arguments people use is that they'll say that um, stealing someone's Bitcoin, and, and again, they, they never specify the conditions of what the theft is because it makes a difference. If you if you break into someone's home and you steal their laptop and you get their codes that way and you're able to take their bitcoins that way, then you've committed an act of trespass already, right? Which is already illegal and should be illegal. Uh, if you break a non-disclosure or confidentiality agreement and you, like you're an employee, again, you're in violation of contract rights. Uh, it's hard to imagine any kind of so-called theft that is within the rules of Bitcoin that actually works to transfer Bitcoins from one account to the other, um, that is not also a separate act of crime that's already covered by libertarian theory and regular tort law, like it's a type of trespass, trespass or contract breach, or uh, you know, if you hold a gun to someone's head and you, you coerce them to give you their code, then you're, you're committing a crime against them. Um, the only way you could imagine that would be if someone just guessed, somehow guessed, um, uh, or somehow spied your key. So like if you're careless and you leave your private key on a big piece of paper in your living room and someone can see it with a telescope through your, through your windows from across the street, I, it's, I don't know if they've really violated your rights. I mean, they haven't violated the rules of Bitcoin if they if they use that key to take the coins. They haven't committed trespass. They haven't committed fraud. They haven't committed breach of contract. They haven't even lied because you don't even have to pretend like you have some legal right to this code to participate in the network. 
you can even be anonymous, right, to be on the network. Um, so the only way you could imagine it would be some kind of other type of coercion, which means that saying Bitcoin is theft, uh, talking about Bitcoin theft is is just a confusion with other types um, uh, of offenses that are already already wrongs. And if you guess someone's key, well, then that means that the encryption relied upon by the network is not sufficient. But for, as far as we can tell, it's 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 more than sufficient for any conceivable future and any conceivable uh, computer systems that could even, you know, guess your code or hack into your code, your your, your private key. Um, and if it wasn't, then the the network would collapse, or maybe another one would evolve, or it would evolve better protections. But the point is, right now, people rely upon the technology and the the, the way the system uh, is designed uh, for practical protection. As long as you keep your code, your your secret key, your private key private, it's virtually impossible for someone to take your. It, the only way someone to do it is is for you to be careless, or for you to. Uh, have your rights violated in other ways like contract breach or trespass. It seems to me, this is how it seems to me being not the greatest expert on the technology of Bitcoin. Oh, fantastic points. And, and that just shows how beautiful Bitcoin is, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, with the internet, we have this network of non-scarce goods, of, of information that is shared freely and openly across millions and billions of nodes. And, uh, you know, on top of this non-scarce network, where at barely any marginal cost, you can send and copy information openly and freely. We now have created on top a system with Bitcoin that is scarce. Uh, in the sense that uh, you know, there are only 21 million, and once I send my Bitcoin to someone else, they're gone. I no longer have them, and I no longer have control over them. Uh, but it is not fully scarce, right? Uh, because even these access codes, even this password to the Bitcoin in order to follow consensus rules, in order to sign the transaction, the password itself is a non-scarce non good. It's words, it's ones and zeros, right? There is no ownership in that aspect, but I can use this non-scarce information to control scarce, units of this non-tangible uh, good, which is called Bitcoin. What, what's interesting about that is um, um, in, in another sense, you know, uh, the, entire, the entire Bitcoin uh, ledger, right? The entire blockchain and the code is open source and anyone can copy it and they do, right? This is what a lot of the altcoins are. They just, there's a, it's basically a copy of the whole thing. There's nothing preventing you from copying the entire ledger right now. It's just that if you don't participate with a given particular network that's using this ledger, you're not going to be able to um, to influence any trans transfers or transactions within it. But you could start your own. It would be like having the ability to take the entire universe or the entire Earth and make a copy of it. But then you wouldn't be able to use it because it would be sterile, right? Or, or maybe it would work. Maybe it would thrive on its own in another universe. Um, and in fact, if someone could walk up to your home or to your bicycle or your car and they could make a copy, I don't think people would mind so much, right? Because the reason I care that someone takes my, my car is because I don't have it anymore when they take it. But if they just looked at it and could make a copy in their own country and use it for their own uses, it wouldn't bother me so much. And this shows in a way that the, the, the lack of analogy between things that are informational in character and things that are material or scarce in nature. Um, the reason we have these concepts of theft and trespass and conflict is because of the reality of the material world. Um, and when we try to transport these concepts like 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 theft to the digital realm, um, we sometimes run into um, to mistakes in our analysis. I think the reason we do it is because in an economic concept, we're worried about prosperity and getting what we want, and we're worried about exchange. So for example, if in a primitive society or in a, in a simpler society, you could imagine 
people having material things like sheepskin or you know a spear or a rock that's sharp or an apple or a sheep or a shoe or whatever, and they, they physically exchange it, then both the participants are better off after the exchange. Well, this could be a purely economic exchange. The law doesn't even have to really recognize it. It's just an exchange. Um, and we see why people start exchanging because of the division of labor and specialization of labor and because of the market economy and because of the nature of trade itself, right? And exchange makes both parties better off. So we start we start legalizing this and we recognize in law property ownership in a more institutional way and then the ability of these owners to exchange and have that exchange recognized by the legal system. And that just enhances this economic ability um, to exchange. So we get used to these concepts like exchange, which is a, a root of what makes us wealthier, which makes what makes our lives better and what makes us more able to achieve our goals. And then we start thinking, well, in a more sophisticated economy where we're more and more separated from what we do, right? Like this is sort of the Marxian idea of the criticism of capitalism is that you're separated from the results of your labor and you get alienated and all these kinds of things. But um, in, a, in, a, in a huge economy like we have now, 7 billion people in the world trading with each other in effect all the time. Um, you don't always know directly the results of what's going on. And so you start impersonalizing these forces um, and you start thinking of anything that you do that gets you some kind of value that you want. And you call it an exchange because it's an interaction with another person. You know, Like if I pay someone uh, for a shoe shine, if I give a girl a smile and she – um, you know, she waits on my table in a slightly better way. There's all these impersonal things. We think of them economically as exchanges, but because we're so used to exchanges being tied up with property rights and ownership that we think of them in a legalistic way, and that's not always proper. It's not always appropriate. Um, law doesn't have to be everything, and maybe it's maybe law is just a uh, intermediate an intermediate phase of humanity. Maybe that you come out of barter and, ex and, and physical exchange and physical interaction and a crude legal, legal system, and the legal system gets more sophisticated. But maybe in the future, the legal system becomes atrophied and is less necessary because uh, it becomes impossible to steal. Like if 99% of your wealth is tied up in intangible or immaterial goods, uh, that it's impossible for someone to so-called steal because it's because of the private key encryption system, then law would become less necessary. It would be harder for people to harm each other. These are all science fictional, futuristic ideas, but uh, it's fun to think about. And so what? <laughs> exactly, it's amazing fun to think about all of this stuff. And and I agree with you that in Bitcoin, you no longer need this classical law. Right? You no longer need to appeal to a court in order to get your Bitcoin back. No, you defend your Bitcoin and nobody can take him away. And, and then you don't even need to go to the, uh, to the judge and ask for your, for your Bitcoin back. And, and maybe then, then to elaborate a bit further on this, and this builds up again on, uh, on what you said in your book, that there, uh, the fact that there can be conflict over these goods by multiple human actors. And, and that is the point that I want to focus on right now, because, uh, you know, Bitcoin is programmable Internet money, right? It's magical Internet money. And yes, you can have a, a UTXO, a, a unspent transaction output that is corresponding to only one public or private key. Uh, and that means that only with the knowledge of this one password. Uh, you can use, you can control this UTXO and reassign it on the ledger. But of course, in Bitcoin, there's also stuff like multi-signature addresses, uh, where not just where you do not only need control over one set of private key, uh, but you need several of them. Uh, let's say two out of three, and that means now that uh, there are several human actors involved uh, that have control over this good, which is a Bitcoin. And my question to you would be: Can there be now conflict? And does this uh, aspect of, of having several people uh, controlling this Bitcoin fundamentally change the, the concept? Well, so the way I would look at it is that um, uh, whatever scheme 
and by scheme, I don't mean a scam. I just mean a, a schema or a system. Uh, whatever private system people enter into, and they're aware of the nature of that system. You know, it's like playing a, mono a game of Monopoly or something like that with people where the rules are laid out and there's only people, certain people that can participate. Uh, when you're aware of what's going to happen to these so-called goods, um, it seems hard to imagine that you have a complaint. Um, and I would imagine that in a sense, the entire Bitcoin system, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to have money among with one person or at all or, or Bitcoin or a network, it only makes sense in a, in a multi-person society in the first place. And even Bitcoin itself has a certain consensus mechanism for recognizing uh, certain transfers, right? Certain transactions. Uh, so you're always dependent upon some kind of external consensus for anything happening with your so your so-called goods. Um, and that's just part of the rules of the game that you've agreed to play. I don't like to call it a game because game theorists use that term in a derogatory way, um, but I think it doesn't have to be derogatory. It is a game in a sense. Um, um, now, as for conflict, I think conflict literally has to mean ultimately some kind of physical, potentially violent clashing of humans with their physical bodies with each other over something that that's a type of thing they could clash over. Um, just because only within a scheme, a private scheme, only a certain number of people or one person could have control over one of the so-called Bitcoins or spaces within that system um, is a different sense of the word conflict, I would say. Um, it's, uh, because, again, to have real conflict, it has to be over a physical resource, and they're not really fighting over who controls the hard drives or the servers of all the other people on the network. Those people have the right to control that already. Um, so, you, but what you could imagine is a group of people that voluntarily came together to do this, and among themselves, they have a private contract. This is similar to corporate law, right? Where corporate law. Uh, there are corporate assets or resources like the money or the capital or the or, or, or the factories. I mean, take the Google Jet for example. The Google Jet. People would say that theoretically, the the jet, you know, the big 747 owned by Google, is theoretically owned by the company, but the company is owned by the shareholders. So they would, I guess, they would have to say that every shareholder of Google is a partial owner of the jet. And you can say that as a legalistic matter, but does that mean that you can go use the jet? No. Does it mean that a Google shareholder can go into the Google headquarters without uh, getting permission? No. Um, so ownership is diffused and spread out, and it's ownership among those people by an agreement between them that the rest of the world agrees to recognize and see them as a single entity. Right, So a simple example would be a husband and wife owning a house. To the rest of the world, they co-own that together. Between themselves, they have to work it out, and they have you know, a marital agreement between them. But if they have a dispute, they have to go by that internal agreement, and if they can't work it out, they have to dissolve the whole thing, and then they go by the pre-existing rules to split the assets up. And at that point in time, when they split the assets up, then the rest of the world uh, would recognize that. So in the case of this co-ownership of Bitcoins um, uh, that you're describing, that's how I would look at it, a co-control a, a, a co, a co of Bitcoins. But everyone in, as part of that regime agreed to it ahead of time. Nice. Uh, so I don't see it as, as a conflict. I, I think it's just – it would just be a case where people are unhappy with the arrangement that they previously agreed to enter into. And if they don't like it, they have to dissolve it according to uh, the ways out that they also agreed to. Oh, exactly. Perfect. Absolutely. I, I agree with all of what you just said. And, you know, the, the act of doing a Bitcoin transaction uh, necessarily implies that, that you do it voluntarily, right? Uh, because, uh, at, well, at, at least according to consensus rules, because you have provided your private key. You have provided the signature. Uh, and according to, to the rules, that's it. Uh, and you have agreed to these rules with you buying uh, Bitcoin, right? With you going out there and running a Bitcoin full mode. 
uh, your act of doing that uh, showcases consent in all these rules. And uh, of course, we've established that Bitcoin is a protocol and therefore speech and therefore nobody owns it. But, and, uh, but now the question, the interesting question is who controls it? And, yeah. and we've, we've seen that with, uh, with stuff like the, the Bitcoin Cash hard fork or the user activated soft fork and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, that's interesting Bitcoin history. But fundamentally, I would say, well, uh, first of all, my Raspberry Pi, this physical box, I own it, right? Yeah. I exchange for it. Uh, I own this physical good. It's a scarce good. Only one person has full control and ownership yeah. over it. It's mine, right? But then, of course, the software, that's where it gets tricky. Because fundamentally, it's just bits, right? It's ones and zeros. Again, speech. Therefore, nobody really owns it. Uh, and, and you earlier talked a little bit about uh, the aspect of, of it being open source. Uh, so although I, I might not own it, I have full control over it because I see every single bit in the software. I could theoretically, if I have these skills, change any line of code at whim. And nobody could stop me. And uh, because I do not have to trust anyone else but my full note, my fully validating and authoritatively validating note, does this mean that I, as a full Bitcoin user, have full control over Bitcoin? Well, I think you know the answer. I think the answer is no, because you're part of a network and you have to, uh, you can't just do, you can't just change the entire. You could make a copy, you could change it, but if you don't follow the rules, others aren't going to recognize it. Um, and by the way, the open source thing, uh, if you didn't, if it wasn't open source, the only way it could not be open source is if, if, if there was copyright law that prevented that. But of course, this is why there's a, 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 an interaction between intellectual property law and what I'm talking about here. Uh, the only way it would not be open source is if there was copyright law, which is completely invalid because, again, software is just code and information and should not be ownable. It is ownable under copyright law, but it should not be. It's an invalid law. So the only way you could say that you don't really own your, your piece of hardware in front of you is because it's got on it a piece of software which is owned by someone else, whoever the copyright authors of that program are. So it's a good thing that they made it open source under the copyright rules. I don't think that um, – I doubt that such a project could work or get off the ground if everyone didn't agree to to release it from the clutches of copyright law. But if, in a free society, there wouldn't be copyright law anyway, and everything would be open source. No software would ever be ownable uh, at all. And also this brings to mind something um, – I didn't send you these links, but you're probably aware of some of these things – different – countries around the world, different governments, different tax agencies and the like have have split as far as I know on the issue of the legal status of bitcoins. Some say that cryptocurrency is what they call property and some say it's not and then then there's a question about whether it's currency or not whether it um but the people that 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 balk at the idea that Bitcoin is not property, like I say, or it's not ownable, um, should be a little bit careful about what they wish for. Because when the government calls it property, now that means it's subject to capital gains taxes and all kinds of regulations and rules uh, by the state. Uh, we might be better off if the government played stupid and acted like they didn't know what to do with it and just treated it like information that was not ownable. Uh, because having the government recognize something as property is not necessarily something that we Bitcoiners want. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. You just blew my mind with this one. Yes, it, that is that is fundamentally true. And you know, as as soon as as uh, they put this property label on it, as soon as they say this is something uh, that we can control. Um, you know, of course, it's hubris because they cannot control it, uh, but it, it sets the precedence uh, of, of them at least trying to. Well, uh, I mean, I think Ross Ulbricht is in jail right now for Silk Road activities and partly because of the use of Bitcoin, right? And the, the, the um, I'll give you another thing slightly off topic, but something I've, I've blogged about before. I think Tom Bell made this point, uh, who's another uh, libertarian law professor. And it's the idea that when you start calling 
copyright and patent, right, which are government-granted monopoly privileges on information. When you call that property, which the government does by labeling it intellectual property, okay, so th then you – so over time to sell this idea that we should have laws that protect rights to information by calling it intellectual property and by making over and over and over again the strained argument that it's, it's a type of property. It's just a different type. It's intellectual property. When they keep calling it a type of property, um, then eventually that turns around, and what, what you'll have is you'll say – you'll have some uh, like welfare status type um, or mainstream type uh, legal theorists or people that want the government to be able to control regular property like your house or your car or your body, um, they'll say, well, uh, your right to intellectual property is not absolute because <laughs> the government can give you a compulsory license or it only lasts for 70 years or 17 years or whatever, and that's a type of property. So we should import the rules that the government uses to regulate intellectual property and import them back onto other types of property. After all, they're the only – they're, they're all types of property. It's it's crazy. Uh, so basically, they make a strained argument to justify an intrusion on property rights by calling it a type of property right, and it's heavily regulated because it's an artificial creation of the state and legislation. And then they turn around eventually and say, well, we should we should regulate regular property in a similar way. So if you get taxed on your on the on the you have a property tax on your home, you can't complain because after all. Patent rights aren't aren't open ended. In fact, the government can take those away after 17 years or whatever. So it's like, wait a second. <laughs> so you got to be careful extending the concept of property to things beyond the material, scarce, tangible world because it can it can bite us. Oh yes, yes, absolutely, and uh, quite interesting. I never thought about uh, the uh, the implications of Bitcoin ultimately not being property, not being ownable. Uh, and and those are far-reaching consequences. Uh, really interesting stuff. I, I really need to do some more thinking on that. Uh, so, uh, Stefan, thank you so much for, for joining us. And I know that you have to get going. So uh, maybe as, as an exit question, is there uh, something that, that we've not yet, yet touched upon uh, in, something, in regard of ownership and control of Bitcoin? Well... I mean, you know, I'm I'm a student of all this, and I, I watch your network, and I watch a lot of the shows, and I'm always personally fascinated by the 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 debates among the Bitcoin maxers, um, and uh, the 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 ones that doubt the uh, you know the the altcoins and 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 Bitcoin Cash and things like that. Uh, personally, I lean towards the Bitcoin maximalist uh, side. Just I lean, but um. The one, the one is Ethereum and the idea of smart contracts, right? The idea of using um, these systems or these mechanisms to somehow automate what people call smart contracts. And I'm personally very skeptical of that, but then I'm, I'm skeptical of artificial intelligence and of automating things in general, uh, just because I'm, I'm just pessimistic minded. I, I don't, I don't see how cars can drive without AI uh, because there's just too many. Unless all cars are or robot or automated cars, you know, uh, if there's if there's just a few humans driving, then the other cars are not going to know what to do. Uh, but anyway, um, so I'm I, I'm fascinated in seeing exactly whether the very idea of smart contracts even makes sense uh, beyond the bare minimum of even Bitcoin, right? Even Bitcoin is a smart contract thing in a sense because it's got an automated transfer of 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 the ledger entries right according to these rules uh but beyond that kind of bare thing i'm i'm skeptical of this whole idea of using um uh, the utility of having smart contracts so i'm i'm open-minded towards that i'm trying to understand it but um everyone that i talk to seems to either when they when they try to justify it or explain it they they either misdescribe property or contract law itself uh, are they too utopian? Are they too um, uh, optimistic? I think in what they're saying. So I'm watching that. I just I'm not quite clear on exactly how this smart contract thing is going to work. So I've got my eyes open towards that. But um, other than that, I've got nothing nothing left to add. 
Oh, yes, that's really interesting, the, the concept of smart contracts. And specifically, uh, I think there is, there's this one inherent flaw in, in all types of smart contracts is that, of course, they are black swan events, right? There are things that you simply cannot predict. And uh, there is a really, really slim chance of them happening. But if one of these black swan events would happen, the consequences would be immense. Uh, and the whole thing with smart contracts is you need to set them up in advance, yeah. right? You need to think about all possible outcomes and especially with a Turing comp a complete scripting language, there are unlimited outcomes. There are un unlimited things that could happen. Well, and, right. And so this is as a as a as a as an attorney who's done a lot of contracts. This is how lawyers think, and uh, we think number one, everyone knows that no contract can ever be complete. Now, this is not even a matter of computer science or the, but it's probably true as a matter of philosophy and computer science. But as a matter of law. It's just a fact that you can never design a document that, that takes into account every possible occurrence. Uh, it would be too expensive to do it, and it's just impossible. I mean, that's why constitutions fail. That's why con so you have to have a mechanism for deciding the issue when something happens that wasn't anticipated. That's one problem. And to my mind, that takes human intelligence and human judgment to do. So I don't see how that can be automated, number one. Uh, maybe it can be made more cheaper. Maybe some arbitration system could make it cheaper or more. But to, to make it completely automated, I don't see how that's possible without artificial intelligence, and I'm a skeptic of that. Um, and then the other issue is to make it automated, you need to have these judgments automated, but not everything is um, a purely monetary uh, contract where both parties can deposit ahead of time a sufficient amount of funds to some escrow agent that could automatically release it. Because a lot of times it's, there's a loan aspect to a contract. Basically, someone is, is borrowing money from someone else in one way or the other because they don't have it yet because they need the funds to engage in some project. So there's no way they could put the money they could there's no way they could put the money aside ahead of time. And the uh, the retort to that would be well, you could just use insurance. But I'm an Austrian and for the same reason I think that that retort doesn't work to save fractional reserve banking, which I also think is an impossibility. Um, um, you cannot insure uninsurable things. You can't insure business success. There's too much of a moral hazard and there's other aspects to it. So there's just no way you can do it. If you could insure it, then it would take the role of the entrepreneur out of things and the insurance company would be really making the decisions and that just pushes it up the chain one degree. So I just don't see how you could have contracts automated either in the drafting sense or taking into account every contingency or having some automated uh, uh, a decision maker that everyone's going to be happy with or having the funds able to be paid. Sometimes the other side can't pay you. And that's why sometimes some of us have um, uh, insurance on our own activities from our own insurance companies that will pay us if we get into a, a, a dispute with someone who is themselves underinsured. So there's a whole complicated thing there. The technology behind it, the vision behind it is fascinating and appealing to me. But the practicality of it, being a lawyer who's been doing this for 25 plus years in the modern era, and I've seen how slow the legal system is to adopt even even form form contracts, right? I mean, everyone does everything by hand, and it's very slow. And very, I just don't see how this is just going to all of a sudden replace the lawyers. But um, uh, we'll see. Oh, yes. Uh, Stefan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining here on the World Crypto Network. Uh, the, the conversation was was amazing. Uh, I for sure learned a lot. Uh, I hope you, the audience, did as well. Uh, so again, th thank you so much for joining. Um, I, I just want to put this out here real quick. Free Ross, goddammit. Uh, no victim, no crime. Uh, this is a human tragedy and we need to get Ross out of there. Um, uh, but that's just as a side note. I need to I need to do much more talking about that in a, in a longer form. Um, guys, as you know, uh, I'm currently writing my bachelor thesis or part of my bachelor thesis on anarchy and money. And one big part here is the scarce and non-scarce goods. Uh, currently have five uh, pages up with that so far. Uh, and of course, it was already heavily influenced by 
uh, Stefan's amazing book against intellectual property. Uh, but now that that I've, I've I've talked to Stefan about this with uh, in regards to Bitcoin, I really need to change some stuff in here. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to re-listening uh, to this to this show and and really making sure that uh, that I hone uh, these words and that they uh, make sense. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, guys, you you can you, you cannot give me the ownership over your Bitcoin, uh, but at least you can pass on the control over from your Bitcoin uh, to me. Uh, so, uh, guys, if you want to support uh, the Purism fundraiser, uh, where we of course uh, will get the open source hardware and software uh, laptop from Purism to do an in-depth review, uh, right here is the possibility with magic internet money. Um, I further uh, suggest you reading this uh, amazing Facebook post by Stefan that he posted on January 16, link in the description, where he goes more into depth of uh, ownership in Bitcoin. Uh, so this is really fantastic. It's a bit longer, uh, so I'm not going to read it here, uh, but it is absolutely worth reading. Uh, guys, uh, that has been it so far uh, here on the World Crypto Network. Uh, it's been a fantastic show, and I hope you got some value out of that. Uh, so, uh, Stefan, thank you again for joining us, and where can the people find out more about you? I'd just say just go to stephankinsella.com, uh, S-T-E-P-H-A-N, Kinsella.com. And for the intellectual property-related stuff, it's on a linked, uh, a linked site, c4sif.org, which is Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom.org. Oh, that is that is amazing. So, guys, here the StephanKinsella.com, Austro-Anarchist, Libertarian Legal Theory. Uh, what else would you want? Come on. <laughs> if you guys enjoyed this uh, this conversation, then I'm sure that you will uh, even more enjoy uh, all the other stuff that uh, Stefan has put out there. Um, so, go out there, read his book, read his blog post. You'll absolutely get some value out of that. Uh, I very much enjoyed this discussion, and I will see you guys on the next one. Bye bye.